0: session with Dr. Fadid Holaqui Good evening welcome to in session I'm your host Dr. Fadid and I'll be with you for the next hour here on Radio Hamros studio number to call in 310. 310- Four four one zero five five five. You can follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show. Or suggest topics or books for the program. And the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and podcast on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. The book of the week for this week that I'll talk about on next week's show. It'll be next Wednesday. Next Monday is Memorial Day, a holiday here in the United States. The book is Why We Fight by Christopher Blatman, Why We Fight, The Roots of War and the Paths to Peace. When I said why we fight, you might have thought I meant in relationships, but this is more about in society, between countries, um, and looking at the roots of war, as the subtitle says. So I'm looking forward to reading that book and discussing it next week. The book of the week from last week that I'll talk about tonight was quite a heavy one, a short but have you won The Blind Owl by Sader Hedayat? Um, this book was recommended to me by a colleague, Dr. Mitra Avari a psychologist, had her on the show um, when she discussed her book, The Divine Balance. And she mentioned this author to me. And so I actually had not read a novel. I've read some, a lot of poetry, Persian poets, but not a novel or novella by an Iranian writer. So I wanted to do so. And uh, as I mentioned, you know, I was thinking about this book, it's the, the version I have is 78 pages long. And so you think, in 78 pages, what, what can happen or how can you be affected? Uh, and then you read it and you get very, very affected. It's a very intense um, novella, very dark, lots of just um, negative types of themes come throughout, but uh, very beautifully written. I had the sense reading this, it was like you're getting dropped into someone's brain, something I felt when I was reading uh, Marcel Proust's work as well, just the sense of you're diving into someone's brain, so even though they're telling you a story, but you feel so in their mind and how they're thinking and what's going on, it was written very, at times very simple, although of course as a translation there's always going to be uh, some issues there. I might touch on that a bit, there was introduction that talked a bit about the translation that I read, Um, but you know you feel like you're just being placed in someone's brain and experiencing what it's like to think and feel like them and I think uh, great writers of fiction tend to do that. They give you the sense of being dropped into their brain and sensing things, seeing, feeling everything from their point of view. Um, Saad al was born in 1903 and he took his own life in Paris. In 1951 at the age of 48 and so um, you know even when I was announced that I was reading this book from a few people I heard that when they were in Iran they had heard things that was, his work is so dark it's so um, depressing that even it might draw drive people to suicide uh, of course his own suicide and then the work being so dark so I heard this from more than one person this almost fear about or this fear that was put into people that they should not uh read this book because of those risks and it was very dark uh and i could see that if you are in a fragile state it probably isn't the best book to read if you're feeling very down or in a dark place yourself it it might be more difficult but um i I thought it was i don't want to say enjoyable especially the first read i read about the book one and a half times which i'll explain um But it was very dark and I felt lost in it sometimes. The book is written in a way where it's hard to at times tell what is reality and what is not. Um, You are the narrator describes an experience and there's lots of themes and motifs that repeat even direct sentences that are repeated Um, and things happen that seem unrealistic. And you think at times he's having some kind of a a hallucination. He talks about taking a large amount of opium. So is he having a hallucination? The two stories or two parts of the book are divided in such a way where it's almost like the same story or the same themes, but in a different way. In one, he's encountering this woman who isn't really quite a woman, but um, kind of seems like some kind of supernatural being, but has an interaction with her. And in the second part, it seems like this same woman is now his wife, but he actually hates her. And uh part in my English calls her a whore repeatedly, almost says, I don't want to call her my wife because of how she's been towards him. Uh, and so it's it's interesting for me, seeing these different dynamics and people have written books, analyzing this book um, and, and written many commentaries on it. So you can read lots of I would would recommend reading the book itself, and then you could read people's commentaries to try to understand because it is very written in a surreal way, in a way that uh, has lots of layers and depth to it. It's not just a straightforward type of a read. Um, But you know, for me, some thoughts that were interesting was he talks about um, sharing thoughts with his shadow. And as I researched a bit about him, there was some speculation that, or I think there was, it seemed that he had read some early uh, psychoanalytic books, one or two by Freud, and maybe some others. And so um, it's more of a Jungian concept I discussed the last week about the shadow, but these parts of ourselves that we disown or put in the dark, not necessarily because they are bad, but because we've learned to disown them or that it's safer not to be that way or to express those parts of ourselves. So. I wondered if times he's having these conversations with these different parts of himself, even the people he interacts with could be different parts of himself, because at times he becomes there's this old man that he talks about at different parts in the book, but at one point he looks like that old man himself. So are there these different um, ways of being or parts of himself that are there in the shadow? It could be part of that as well. Uh, There's also, I guess this is kind of a spoiler, but he ends up again you don't know if it's real or fake or it's a hallucination or imagination but he ends up killing his wife stabbing her um and in the first part of the book she dies in his presence and he chops her up afterwards to be able to bury her and so uh, as i was mentioning in the first part she is this almost angelic figure that transfixes him has such an impact on him In the second part, she's such a negative person. Again, it seems like it's the same thing, same story, but in different versions or viewpoints. Uh, Reminded me of how we can idealize and devalue someone, the same person. And so depending on how we are seeing them, our perspective, the same person can be seen as either an angel or a devil or either uh, angel or whore in this case, um, who's impacting our life in, in a particular way. Um, But you also, there's a lot of imagery about Iran, and I I looked up some things, so that was nice for me, seeing Iran in ancient Persian history and more recent history, to try to understand some of the imagery that's in the book. Um, As I also discovered, there's a lot of disagreement at times of what was meant. A book of this kind of complexity, and written in such an opaque way at times, it's going to be hard to know exactly what was meant. By the author to say this is definitely what he was implying many people of course have pointed to is there are suicidal themes in it as well there's homicidal themes when we consider his own suicide was he himself tormented when you read the book you don't get the sense of someone who's having a good positive experience there's a lot of darkness in it and so i read the book one time through it's not very long as i mentioned and the first read through i only read it halfway the second time. But the first read through, I felt very lost in it, which I think could be part of the experience because you don't really know um, what's going on. Is this part of the hallucination? Who is he talking about exactly? There's even confusion in the story. Is his uncle his uncle or his father? If you read the book, you'll see why there's that confusion. They were identical twins. Um, But there's a lot of confusion I had that actually made me feel almost uncomfortable. I realized as I was reading it, uh, I wouldn't say it was making me down in a sense, but almost agitated in the sense of not sure what's going on. The themes were very dark, lots of things were coming up that were negative, but I recognized I had the sense of apprehension, agitation. Um, and then when I finished the book, it had some sense of resolution that it was completed. And then I was trying to process it a bit and took some time. And then after about a day, I read the first segment again and I realized I had such a different experience reading it that second time. Um, possibly knowing some of the elements of the second part. I'm not sure, but I felt more calm reading it. Possibly because I knew what was what was coming next to a degree. Um, kind of like if you're seeing a horror movie and you know now what's going to happen. It's a little bit less scary when things jump out or things happen because you can anticipate them whereas the first time you can't do so. I remember the movie The Joker, which came out, I think, about three years ago. I saw that movie twice, and the first time I remember this edge-of-my-seat feeling of, what is he going to do? That was terrifying. That was very scary. And the second time, although it was still dark, I had less of that anxiety and agitation about what was going to happen next. So maybe that's what it was the second time around, reading that first segment. Although the first segment has some dark elements to it but definitely it's lighter than the second part of the book where he's in this horrible marriage with this woman who won't even consummate the marriage with him but will be with many other men and he is sickly and and old and in ill health and not doing well so the second part is definitely uh, heavier and darker so i'd like to actually read the second part and see if I still experience that part as more comfortable the second time around, um, but it was interesting for me as I read the first half. Again, it felt like a different book. It felt very different to me than than the first time around, which was was quite interesting. And so uh, I should also mention, as I said, the translation of any kind of a foreign book, a book in a different language, we always have to be mindful that that's going to have an effect. And I. Would wonder, I I would probably lose some of the words if I heard it in its original, but my Farsi is not good enough to read the book, but to listen to it in audio form, I was thinking about that to see what that experience would be like. I'm sure so much is lost in translation. And uh, this edition I have was translated by Navid Nuri, and it says it's uh, based on the Bombay edition, and he explains in the introduction, which itself was about 20 pages. different aspects of different translations and how that he believes there were some mistakes in earlier editions because of things that happened that he explains and how things were transcribed and then printed and whatnot Um, but was also interesting because he mentioned something called domestication versus foreignization in translation and so domestication is when the translator makes the the, the the text a little bit more readable into the language, but they often have to change a lot to make it more readable in the language they're translating it into. And so we have more fluency, that's the emphasis. Whereas in foreignization, the emphasis is more on keeping the original um, source, language, and culture even if it makes it a bit less fluent to read. And so he says that he chose foreignization more to try to keep as much as possible to the original, and at times to do that, he also uh, would not translate certain words. So um, I can see if I can find one of those where it would have something. One of them was even things like "osh," and then on the bottom would say, uh, like a regional a soup that has regional um, uh, different variations based on where you are. But there's places that like things that were more historical, like uh, monetary units that were used. Um, prior to the 20th century that might have indicated that there was some connection with history. Um, Let's see if I can find one of those words here. But he tried not to translate words if he felt that you would lose something. Even Nooruz was left as Nooruz and then translated as to how it is, um, you know, what it means. Or here we have which I actually have not heard, but a mirror that shows the reflection of a person as skinny, sallow, and unhealthy. So he decided to go for that more fornization, which I actually thought would be good, because I wanted to keep it as close to the original in the ways that you can preserve that, uh, even if it's a little bit less fluent, meaning some of the words might not be the ones we use as commonly or might not read a- as smoothly in that sense. But anyway, I'm glad I read this book because uh, from what I researched on uh, Saad al he's considered one of the great writers. So I'm considering him the best writer, especially of the 20th century Iranian literature. And so to read a work of his for me was, was important. Uh, it was an interesting experience. It's, that's how I describe the book. It's not that you, obviously, I read a lot of nonfiction for the show. Um, you're going to learn specific things like facts or information. But I had an experience reading it. And it was quite fascinating in that sense. So, again, it's dark. If you're feeling um, in a lower state of being or a lower state of mood, it uh, might not be the best book. It could have an effect on you. I wouldn't want to scare anyone in the sense of it's going to make you suicidal, as I was warned or people had mentioned to me. Um, but nonetheless, is a dark book, but I still found it fascinating, quite interesting. Uh, again, that's The Blind Owl by Sader Hedayat. All right, let's go to a commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. So in the first segment, I was talking about the book, The Blind Owl by Sadegh Hedayat. And as I mentioned, he uh, took his own life in uh, 1951 at the age of 48. Um, And so, you know, I was thinking about suicide as I read the book. And afterwards, as I mentioned, people told me about Uh, Those warnings and things that they had heard themselves, and and in the book you also see themes of exclusion that he doesn't want to be this this narrator, part of the rabble, like the 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 mess the rest of uh, people or the the main, um, I guess how do you define rabble? I'm going to look it up just to make sure I'm getting it. It could be either a disorderly crowd, but it's usually ordinary people, which is how he seems to mean it. And the rabble comes up that word often. I don't know the original. In Persian, um, but feeling excluded, feeling not part of. And so that can mean lots of things to me as part of society being not good. And there's things about it that are bad and you want to be part of that or as part of being excluded, not being part of um, the accepted group or accepted people. And so often when we look at something like suicide, it can be related to not feeling accepted, not feeling like you are um, part of your group even some have argued that there could be some evolutionary understanding of it in that way that why would we even have these types of thoughts or why would they be there Uh, I think we always have to be careful because sometimes not everything we experience as humans is going to be productive or adaptive Uh, there could be something that's related to something else that's positive in some way but might have negatives but nonetheless Uh, Thinking about um, suicide and talking about suicide are things that I try to keep in mind. Of course, as a therapist, we always have that in mind. We have that awareness that it is, if you want to call it the biggest hazard we can have that we have to protect our clients against, it probably is that. And even when we discuss therapy, we begin therapy, we have to share the limits of confidentiality. So confidentiality is so vital to have a therapeutic alliance and relationship that the client feels comfortable and safe, that the therapist will not share with anyone what they're talking about. Not only that, even the relationship of therapy can't be um, discussed, meaning that the therapist cannot even disclose that someone comes to them for therapy, let alone the contents of what they talk about. But in order to feel comfortable, although let me add something about that. Of course, the contents even more, um, I think, makes a lot of sense. But we can see that the stigma of seeing a therapist still is related to this. So I, of course, will always protect that confidentiality in the relationship uh, that a client is seeing me as confidential absolutely but I also know that some of it is related to the fact that we see therapy as such a thing that should be um, hid or hidden that we do that because I know medical doctors also have that type of confidentiality but you see that people are much more comfortable with that's my doctor or even that kind of back and forth because it's much more accepted especially if it's your your general practitioner Well, of course it's actually good you go get checkups and get get seen but with therapy the relationship even more that's the case but nonetheless that confidentiality is very very vital and critical to having even the basis for therapy to begin to have that type of a open vulnerable dialogue Uh, but we do tell clients that there are a few exceptions to confidentiality and one of them is that if we felt that they were in danger of hurting themselves or others. So if they had suicidal or homicidal, uh, not just thoughts, but um, actually we felt that there was a risk of taking action. And I could add this too, because this comes up a lot with clients, because you know, we explained these limits of confidentiality that uh, I might have to intervene if you were to have, let's say, suicidal, if I thought you were to harm yourself. And so it can make people think that the association is, as soon as they say they've even thought about suicide, I push some button and the police, you know, or some kind of emergency uh, authorities show up at their door, which is not the case. So that, I hope that is something people are aware of. If you are in therapy, you can even, of course, ask your therapist, but not to think that even thinking about therapy or, uh, sorry, suicide or saying it in some way means that will break confidentiality instantly it's really only if we feel that the client is at risk that we might have to so it's really to protect the individual um and so suicide is front of mind we mention in that when we establish confidentiality but we always have it in mind especially if a client is in some way going towards depression or is depressed and we feel that sense and we might even check in about it so but so going back to this notion that it doesn't mean just because You have a suicidal thought that your therapist is going to break confidentiality, it's actually quite common um, for at some point in your life to have some level of suicidal thinking. So I'm not saying that's mean it's healthy for you to be suicidal or that you should feel that way, but then when you ask people if you ever even considered it in some degree, which I'll explain what that can mean, it's actually less, it's more common than you might think. And so I say that in case you're out there and you've ever thought about it and you think it means you're really bad or weird. um, You're not necessarily as, uh, you probably have more company than you realize. And that of course also means if you ever thought about it and you're even thinking about it more seriously, please, please seek out help. There's a lot of help out there, but I want us to normalize talking about it So to not think that if you've ever had it cross your mind in any way that you shouldn't tell anyone because they'll think you're so different because it's something that many people have thought about. So maybe here I can add some thoughts about when I say there's a range there, what that means. So suicidal thinking or ideation is on a spectrum of sorts. So uh, and sometimes it can be broken up into passive versus active types of way of looking at it and also how serious it is. So passive suicidal ideation or suicidal thinking, that would be something like, gosh, if I didn't wake up tomorrow, I wouldn't mind. So it's still dark. It's still in a place that's concerning or probably means the person is not feeling good about their life, about facing life, but they aren't thinking of actively taking their own life. There's just this The will to live is not so strong that I love my life and I can't wait for tomorrow. There's a bit of this sense of impending doom of tomorrow. Can I face the day? Do I want to face the day? And so if I somehow didn't have to face tomorrow, I might feel okay or be okay with that. I wouldn't resist it as strongly. So that is in the passive type of suicidal ideation which people might have at at sometimes when we're feeling overwhelmed, feeling really down, feeling like there's too much to face, feeling like there's something coming up that we don't know if we can face it. All sorts of things might play into um, that type of thinking. But again, that's not something that likely will lead to some kind of need to break confidentiality, because it doesn't seem that the person is actually at risk, if that's the case. So that's on one end of the spectrum or some thoughts about that in some even passive way. Oh, I've thought about it, or it came to my mind, or it came to my mind that I can understand why people would want to do something, but I never would. So those types of things might come to people's mind. And then, of course, at the other other far extreme is having an actual plan and intent to take action to take your own life would be on the other extreme of that spectrum. And then, of course, there's everything in between that with lots of different variations and and ways of thinking and feeling that might affect how likely someone is to do that. And so as a therapist, we might do a suicide assessment, meaning we're trying to understand if a client has expressed any level of thinking in that direction, we might want to really assess to see where they are at and how comfortable we feel about them um, going Forward and, and let's say ending the session and feeling we'd feel okay, that they're going to be okay. And even if you feel like they're okay and you don't want to break confidentiality, sometimes a therapist might increase sessions, increase communication or check-ins, come up with a plan with the client of things to do during that time to help them if they're in a lower place, of, whether it's some coping skills, seeing people, talking to people that they can do, Uh, To help them during that time as well. And so the reason why I wanted to have this conversation, some of it might be informative, some of it might not be, but also just, I always think it's good to talk about a taboo topic to reinforce the mindset that it's okay to talk about it. It's okay to tell a loved one that you've thought about it, or it's come to your mind before, or that you're currently in that state. And I hope both People hearing this will feel more comfortable sharing it, but also if you're hearing it, that you'll be okay to hear it as well. That again, it is scary. We hear that word. I understand it's a very loaded word and as it should be, it is something very serious, but just because it's something serious doesn't mean we can't handle it. doesn't mean we can't talk about it because I can't tell you the number of times, whether it's professionally or just I've heard this or I've heard it from colleagues that Parents will say that their teenagers somehow alluded to suicide, but the parents just said, oh, I think my kid was just saying something. And yes, people sometimes say certain things and they might be saying something as a joke or in passing or in jest or to exaggerate how bad they feel or something. Uh, those things are all possible, but people, of course, genuinely have those thoughts and feelings as well. And so I would always err on the conservative side, meaning that if someone says something in passing, I would rather be the one who misses what they mean and takes it seriously rather than to go the other way around. Because often what I have felt when people respond in that way is not just they've done a a genuine assessment or they really are attuned with the person they're talking about. It's very often an act of denial that it's... So scary to think the possibility that our loved one, our child, or whoever it is, is considering suicide in any way, that we'd rather just pretend like it's not there and hope it goes away, or it's just something they said and it's not real, rather than take it seriously, because we also might feel ill-equipped. What do I? What does that even mean? Taking it seriously. What do I do Uh, if I open up that conversation? What am I supposed to do with? what my child says, whatever that might be. So we'd rather avoid it. We tend to avoid things that make us feel uncomfortable, especially if we feel like we can't handle it. And so this could be one of those types of topics. And so what I would recommend is, let's say your child said it all, oh, you know, I, this happened, or if this happens, I'm going to kill myself or something along those lines. If it's right that moment, let's say they go to the room or whatever it is, the next time you can to just bring it up to them, you know, hey, you said this out there and I just wanted to check in with you about that." And they might say, Oh, I was just mad. I just yelled something, um, which is okay. And you can still explore it further. Okay. I just want you to know that I'm always here for you. Um, I take that kind of a expression very seriously because uh, I care about you. I love you. I want to make sure you're okay. And and to me, that's something serious. And so often people say, Well, people might use that manipulatively, which can happen. I wouldn't go there first, is it possible? Of course, people can use almost anything in that way uh, as a way to emotionally hijack a situation. But still, I would err on the side of calling it out as real because if they're using it in that manipulative way, you are making it more real by saying, okay, if you're going to say that, we're going to take action. So if you really are feeling that way, we might have to call an ambulance or take you to the hospital to make sure you're protected and you're safe because we don't want anyone to obviously use that as some kind of threat. Well, give me this or I might be suicidal or something like that. So we say, okay, well, if you are, then we have to take action. We have to do something about it. So I would always err on the side of this is real. This is not manipulative. This is not just something as a joke or exaggerated or fake or a phase or something like that, because what we do see is, yes, can, can I say we're going to prevent every suicide? I mean, I think that's possible, but I think Can we prevent many of them? Yes, definitely. Because we do see that there are signs and things people say to tell certain people, express in a certain way that gives us some insight into that possibility. But too often we are afraid to go there, too afraid to have the conversation to even allow for us to be there for them. And being there for them doesn't mean you have to fix it all yourself. There are resources, whether you have to call uh, an ambulance, call um, the pet team, or whatever it is in your locality that will respond to psychiatric emergencies or take the person to the hospital to make sure they are okay. There are things you can do. You don't have to do it all by yourself, but there are ways to help. But you can't help if you don't know the problem or you don't really ask about the problem to see what it is so i hope you will be bold when it comes to this topic suicide is something difficult to talk about i totally can understand that even for me i feel it every time i'm saying suicide here on the air i do say it with its actual word and name to make it less and less taboo but as a therapist who has been doing this for many years it still is a charged word and a super charged topic so i understand that But I hope we will recognize that it's so charged because it's something so serious and important and literally a matter of life and death. So we can be bold and try to embrace it and face that or we can go away from it recognizing that it could cost someone's life. I think the choice is easy as lots of things are. It's simple but doesn't mean it's easy to execute it but it's an easy decision. And I hope we go, we'll go towards that rather than away. All right, let's go to our last commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. So May is Mental Health Awareness Month. Um, and this is actually one of the last shows I'll be doing in May. And to be quite honest, these things, I think they're good to have these types of months, weeks, days that remind us of something or to emphasize something, International Women's Day, Black History Month, um, May, Mental Health Awareness Month, but as is the case with all of those other ones, it's not something we should only think about that day. And so for me, really, every month is Mental Health Awareness Month, uh, doing this show now for eight years, and that is essentially the focus every time is on mental health awareness, as I was talking about the last segment, talking about suicide, talking about issues related to mental health that we have made or that continue to be taboo and stigmatized because when things are taboo and stigma, people suffer in silence and they suffer unnecessarily. And so Mental Health Awareness Month, I think that's great to have that. I also can see how um, it's another one of those that I sometimes think of in the future won't be necessary. And I look forward to that future because mental health will be so commonplace or considered so much a part of the way we think about things that there won't be some extra need to think of it in a a different way or to make sure we don't forget it because it's going to be so prominent in the way that we view things or think about things. And it's so much part of our human experience. Um, You know, I was talking to some people a few months ago, they were talking about planning something, and those details are not relevant. But I realized that when you say mental health, for a lot of people, it makes them think of mental illnesses. Um, so they, you know, people use mental wellness or other words because they think mental health almost sounds too medicalized or, you know, in some way pathologized in some way. So if you're talking about mental health, it means you have to have some mental disorder that can be diagnosed, which that itself is that not uncommon. I've seen 20%, 30%, probably even more if you consider lifetime prevalence or occurrence that you will experience some mental illness at some point in your life. It's pretty common. But nonetheless, mental health doesn't have to mean just about the illnesses. Just if we talk about physical health or medical health, we don't just mean illnesses we can also mean, what do you do to take care of yourself in that way? So when people improve their diet or exercise or do get more sleep for their physical health, it doesn't have to just be in response to some illness. We can think of ways of promoting our physical health in general. And similarly, we can um, do things to promote our mental health and to have that front of mind, which is why that's good, mental health awareness, bringing it to more awareness. And it's not surprising, I mentioned some things for your physical health, um, eating better, exercising, getting better sleep. All of those things are going to be good for your mental health as well. Because uh, we could see that our ways of differentiating the human experience often are ways of slicing a pie, but you can slice it in different ways. Because where does medical end and mental begin when we talk about medical health and mental health the line is much more blurry and overlaps actually more than anything in the sense that anything that we consider medical has mental health components anything we consider mental health has medical sides to it as well any feeling that we have that we consider you know we tend to think of our feelings kind of happening in our head but then they also experience in our body Um, it has physical manifestations, right? If you're anxious and you feel a tightness in your chest, is that tightness in your chest just mental health? Is it only related to that? Or is it also related to physical and medical health, right? We can see that there's an overlap in any other feeling that you have. uh, Fear, of course, will have strong responses in the body to respond to some kind of perceived threat. But even if you're happy, if you're... Uh, sad, if you're angry, all of those emotions have physical parts. So to say they're just mental um, is missing really the point of what you're experiencing in human life. So we do try to do these things. And of course, I might even in these next few minutes talk about emotions or feelings as part of the mental side. But I make these points to um, make it clear that this differentiation that we have is less real than we think. Or to think that someone is physically hurt and that's real, mentally hurt, it's not so real. Something I talked about recently when I was discussing things like pranks and practical jokes where people feel like, well, if no physical harm was done that I can see, then there was no harm done. Whereas we don't consider mental uh, pain or emotional pain to be real. Um, And the reason why I said actually physical pain I could see because really if someone goes through something mental, we might not see it, but they could still be feeling pain that is internally something they experience. Um, and internally is interesting. this goes back to some of our feelings about consciousness and this ghost in the machine and the way we experience things. Uh, the sense that the feelings happen somewhere else, kind of like it with consciousness, whereas really we're all we're experiencing things uh, all in the same way, whether we consider it purely physical or Emotional. There's no way to really say what it is or where, where, where it's happening. But anyway, there is this tendency we have um, to think of physical illnesses as okay or physical pain as okay and mental as somehow uh, in your head. I always find that funny when people say in your head because, yes, there's stuff that happens in our brains that is real. Just like when you have a physical pain, we can see something on your body, let's say, um, which then is going to get... Uh, um, communicated to your brain. But anyway, we still are able to see those things as well. So there's this tendency we have to say that uh, physical pain is real and emotional pain is not as real or it's fake. Even in the Iranian culture, there is tendencies towards this. When I was working on my dissertation in graduate school, this was the topic, was looking at somatization, this tendency that if we don't express emotional Things that we go through we don't express our feelings or have that space to do so we can express it in physical symptoms or ailments and um, one of the things I saw in looking at cultural factors that people had seen in Iranian culture was that you could get more attention for a headache or a backache than you could for saying you're feeling down about something so you would hear stories about someone saying Uh, You know, every year when the person's father's anniversary of the death comes, they don't get sad, but they have much more, you know, backaches and headaches and stomach aches. um, Because they also might feel more comfortable having physical pain, and it's not that I'm weak and have emotional pain or distress. And also people might respond more favorably. And we do see that with things like if someone has, uh, let's say, cancer or some kind of medical illness or diagnosis, there's pretty overwhelming uh, support and people want to help that person but if they say someone has OCD or um, bipolar disorder the response might be very different we tend to blame the individual going through it or think it's somehow their fault or also they're kind of crazy or weird or all these things even though it's things that we all uh, go through and can experience in different ways and there's nothing about them that we can say is something wrong but the support you are to get is likely going to be quite less if you are saying you're going through a mental illness, unfortunately. Thankfully, we are moving away from that and more towards having empathy and compassion for people who are going through a mental illness or a mental struggle, which I think is wonderful, recognizing that mental health is part of our health and our well-being. Um, and so because of that, it deserves attention. It deserves care, but we still have a long way to go because we still see that, that stigma of mental illness is strong. The stigma of seeking out mental health services—I talked about that in relation to confidentiality in the previous segment. Um, all of these things are still quite strong, strongly there. And so, as a therapist, I've seen in my—you um, know—over 10 years of seeing clients changes in how people feel overall about seeking therapy but still when people come to therapy there's often uh, this sense that they've been suffering for a long time and now finally are going or people have told me to go for years or mention I should go to therapy and now I'm finally doing it and often it's because of these stigmas of I don't want to be someone who goes to therapy or who needs therapy and so you know I'm not going to go and so we suffer unnecessarily because getting help feels weak, feels like it's going to mark us in some negative way, and that's really unfortunate. I actually had therapy this morning. I started again a few months ago, and so I got to go to therapy this morning, and I'm glad I did, and I encourage you to do so, and not to see it as a sign of any kind of weakness, or that you're crazy, but actually that you're taking your mental health seriously, and you want to understand yourself better, and to take care of yourself. So, it's nothing that we. Need to be ashamed of or or to hide it's something that we can share openly and that's why i mention it so hopefully it'll encourage others to feel that way as well and if someone can't handle you saying that you go to therapy um you know that's unfortunate and maybe if that's the way you think that's not someone for you you might be very different from one another i've seen some memes things like Uh, Forget sending nudes, send me your receipts from therapy or something like that, which I think is kind of funny. Um, But the sense that I'd rather see that you're working on yourself or trying to understand yourself rather than your physical body being the thing or seeing it in that way. Um, But coming back to this theme of mental health and seeing it in a certain way and even the importance of it. So I was mentioning that there is this blurry line, but um, when I consider our experience, uh, really what makes life worth living or what we are enjoying in life are the feelings and i do think there is this connection between the physical and the what we call emotional they all have that component to it so uh don't get me wrong i could see how that's a big part of it as well you can't have those feelings without the physical but when we consider what we're doing in life i think especially as human beings when we see that we are physical beings but who have this emotional some would say Spiritual but let's just say emotional experience if we have this emotional experience. Those are the parts that tend to give life Meaning the emotional things that we go through and experience even the ups and downs make it meaningful the challenges that we Encounter so we can see that the mental even to me in some ways not to say it's more significant But it's a more significant part of what gives us meaning we take care of our physical body to make sure we're okay and healthy, to then be able to live life, to then have experiences that feel in a certain way. So uh, I can imagine someone hearing this years from now and saying, well, um, and maybe even right now, but there's a way that we see the physical and the emotional as so the same that my differentiation might be meaningless. But nonetheless, in this world that we live in that still sees medical and mental as so different and the physical and the emotional as so different and the physical and the medical being more important or more superior, I hope we can actually recognize that it's really the feelings that make life worth living. When you think of loving someone or feeling connected to someone or those things we have, we consider the emotional experience as the one that really has value, not just something physical being what we are striving for or try to experience. So just some thoughts about that. May is Mental Health Awareness Month. If you have never been to therapy, I highly encourage that you go it is not something weird or abnormal it's something where you have a a special type of conversation with someone who's going to be there for you to help you understand yourself better and to understand your mental health your your personal relationship with yourself and with others in a way that will help you grow it's nothing to be afraid of nothing to be embarrassed about or ashamed of Uh, and i hope if you have any mental health challenges you recognize you're not alone and seek out some help because you deserve that, then the help is out there. All right, that brings us to the end of tonight's show. A big thank you to Amir here in the studio. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi we Have a wonderful night.